Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height or depth nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Today is a special Sunday because of tomorrow. Tomorrow in this country we celebrate, we have a holiday set aside for the uh, memory of those who have served in our armed forces and those who have given their lives as a sacrifice that we in this nation might enjoy the freedoms that we have. This holiday began near the end of the war between the states as the uh, Confederate widows would decorate the graves of the Confederate soldiers in the south, and then there were also uh, places in the north where these same things were taking place. And for many years, the uh, Memorial Day was referred to as Decoration Day. And so this tradition carried on until uh, the late, uh, uh, late 60s when the last Monday in May was set aside as a uh, national holiday uh, for Memorial Day. So the focus of Memorial Day is on remembering, remembering those who have given their lives, given their lives in service to this, to this nation. And this morning what I want to do is take some time to think about one particular episode that occurred in World War II, an episode that is somewhat personal to me because uh, my father was involved in that battle, and uh, that is the Battle of Iwo Jima. And as we think about the Battle of Iwo Jima and think about those who served there and the heroes who are buried there and who never made it off the island, it is, gives us an opportunity to also reflect about a number of strategic truths that we learn as we just study uh, history and study the battles in history because, as we all know, it is in Scripture the metaphor of warfare Physical warfare and the battles that are fought uh, in history is often used to teach spiritual truths about a much greater and grander battle or war that we are all a part of, which we often refer to as spiritual warfare or we refer to as the angelic conflict. But that war, as we see it in human history, is but a pale reflection of a much greater war that takes place in the heavenlies. So today I want to honor those who were veterans of the Battle of Iwo Jima and think a little bit about 
how the principles from that battle that we can learn and apply to our own spiritual lives. So before we get started, let's uh, bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we pray that you would help us today as we reflect upon this, this battle in our history and we reflect upon the principles that we observe in that battle and how they apply to uh, spiritual truth and how they are uh, they illustrate principles that are laid out in your scripture, that you would help us to understand the importance of a national entity, the importance of nations as you instituted them after the great flood of Noah in the Noahic Covenant and later at the time of the Tower of Babel, and that the role of nations and the role of government was to restrict evil and to preserve individual freedom and to be an instrument for good and righteousness and not an instrument for tyranny or an instrument for evil. Yet because men are sinners and men are fallen in the because of the sin of Adam, often we see governments perverted to be instruments of control, instruments of uh, tyranny, instruments which restrict freedom and seek to uh, seek to glorify men rather than be an instrument of righteousness. And Father, help us to also remember that those who have served in our armed forces, those who have given their lives uh, before us to preserve our freedoms, are very, very special. We should not forget the cost uh, for the freedom that we enjoy every single day. But beyond that, there is a greater freedom that we have, and that is our spiritual freedom, which was also bought with a price, and that was the death of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross of Calvary as he gave his life as a payment for sin, and that in him we might have true freedom. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen. War is not a very pleasant thing. Often in history, war has been glorified, but it is something that is a demonstration of the horrors and the depravity that exists in the human soul. Because men are inherently evil, and because men are sinners in the likeness of Adam and Adam's sin, there are always going to be those men and those nations and those governments that seek to dominate and seek to control and seek to destroy others, those who seek to have a control over others and to destroy uh, their freedoms. And under those conditions, war then becomes just in the defense of one's nation and in the defense of the lives of those in one's nation. Now, a hundred years ago, or a little more than a hundred years ago, towards the end of the 19th century, because of the influence of the uh, enlightenment that had been in, dominated European thought for basically 200 years and the fruit that it bore in the development of thought in the 19th century, the whole idea that men were sinners and that man was inherently evil was considered some sort of antiquated doctrine. Men were thought to be basically good and that they were improvable and perfectible and that societies and nations were basically good and perfectible 
and that we could actually improve as each generation went by to the point where we could bring in a utopic uh, government and a utopic society. And this was known under the name of 19th century liberalism or progressivism. But the idealism of the late 19th century liberalism was shattered and destroyed on the fields of Flanders. In World War I, the excessive carnage of modern warfare revealed once again that the human heart is deceitful and wicked, as the Scripture says, above all things, who can know it? So war is a terrible thing. It is an ugly thing. And as John Stuart Mill said, war is an ugly thing but not the ugliest of things. The decayed and degraded state of moral and patriotic feeling, which thinks nothing in war is, nothing is worth war, is much worse. A man who has nothing for which he is willing to fight, nothing he cares about more than his own personal safety, is a miserable creature who has no chance of being free unless made and kept so by the exertions of better men than himself. War is sometimes a necessity. In the Old Testament, the Jews in Israel were, when they returned to the land after their captivity in Babylon, uh, had to face the opposition, much like today, of those who had been resettled there during the time of the Babylonian captivity and who were opposed to their return and reestablishment of the nation. And they had to fight, as the Jews returned, they had to fight to protect themselves. And in Nehemiah 4.14, Nehemiah was encouraging his fellow Israelites, and he said, Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your houses. Now this morning, I want to look at this one battle, the Battle of Iwo Jima and look at it as a metaphor for the spiritual struggle that we all are a part of, the battle that rages and has raged against God ever since the time of Satan's fall. The Battle of Iwo Jima is marked by one particular photograph that is probably one of the most well-known photographs uh, around the world and is marked also by a statue that is the world's tallest bronze statue, that stands at the north end of Arlington National Cemetery uh, across the river from our nation's capital. It is in that statue that, and in the photograph taken by uh, Rosenberg, that preserves for us a picture, a moment in time, when those six men uh, elevated that flag over Mount Suribachi as a symbol of victory. Now, they had not yet won the victory, They had captured the high ground, but the victory would not be won for another 31 days, 31 horrible days, as it turned out, some of the worst fighting that ever occurred in the Second World War. On December 7th, 1941, the Empire of Japan, without provocation or cause, achieved complete surprise over the uh, United States Navy, as much of the Pacific Fleet was at anchor in Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. 
Japanese had a powerful, well-thought-out campaign that actually had begun much earlier in around 1933 as they had invaded Manchuria, seeking to uh, take control of China on their way to taking control of Southeast Asia in order to get uh, much-needed natural resources uh, for their expanding uh, population. And so they, they were motivated by... Uh, the need for markets, they were motivated by the need for material, and they were motivated by a religious motivation that justified what they were doing. And it was that religious motivation that uh, brought a level of evil to what they did that goes far beyond anything that had been experienced in many wars previous to this particular time. And in, it was at in that particular context, that the, primarily the United States was called to fight against this enemy that had uh, so devastatingly attacked the naval forces at Pearl Harbor. And over the time from late 1941 until February of 1945, through one campaign after another, the United States Navy and some forces from the United States Army were, and the United States Navy, of course, included the United States Marine Corps, were going from island to island as they went from uh, Bougainville in the south and Guadalcanal as they marched north through the uh, Caroline Islands and the Marianas to this little bitty volcanic island uh, about six or 700 miles to the southwest are southeast of the island of Japan called Iwo Jima. And there's not much there that is worthy of value, except that there was an airstrip there that was a place where the kamikaze pilots could take off and attack our uh, the American fleet. And it was a place where, uh, if, the, if captured by the Americans, could be used as a place for uh, bombers to take off to bomb the homeland in Japan. And as the uh, United States forces approached Japan, it was recognized that it was necessary to take the island of Iwo Jima. Now, Iwo Jima was important strategically because this was a strike at the very homeland of the Japanese who had this, this religious dedication to the land, that this was the land that was theirs by right, that they looked at Japanese homeland as part of the first creation that had sprung forth from Mount Fuji, and even though Iwo Jima was 650 miles away, it was a part of that Japanese homeland. And so to strike there and to win the battle there and to win that land would strike also a tremendous psychological blow uh, to the Japanese uh, people. And they, uh, for the first time in over 4,000 years, this would mean that a foreign army had won a victory on Japanese soil. And so Emperor Hirohito appointed as the head of the defenders on Iwo Jima uh, Lieutenant General Tadamichi Kuribayashi, who changed the strategy and tactics of the Japanese in order to defend this island. So when the Marines hit it, 
they didn't have the same kind of response from the Japanese that they had had at other islands. On other islands, they were faced with uh, bonsai attacks initially, and then uh, after they defeated that, then there would be a gradual uh, sort of mopping up operation. But what took place on the island, and here you have a picture of the island, and for those of you who are interested, I brought in this morning and laid out on the conference table in the conference room a battle map that my dad carried on Iwo Jima and also a Japanese flag that he uh, took off of a dead Japanese soldier when he was on Iwo Jima as well as some other things that are there. And don't touch anything, please, but uh, I thought I would put those out so that you could take a look at that. It's an opportunity to have a, a special uh, contact with with something historical. There's also a... Um, shadow box hanging on the wall there which displays uh, the purple heart silver star that my uh, father won on the two days he was very busy two days on Iwo Jima 48 hours uh, wounded twice and received a bronze star and a silver star now Iwo Jima was uh, arguably the worst battle that the United States Armed Forces was engaged in in World War II. Of the 84 medals of honor received by the United States Marines in the four years of World War II, 27 of those 84 medals of honor were won in this one battle that lasted 36 days. There were 7,000, a little less than 7,000 dead in those 36 days of fighting and over 19,000 Americans were wounded. It was the only battle in the war where the casualties of the U.S. forces exceeded the casualties of the Japanese, and that was because of the particular strategy and ta- that they used in, um, in this battle. Now, I'm going to go into some detail on the uh, battle and how it developed simply because it illustrates some principles that we need to understand But our purpose here is not to go through military history, but to understand the implications of these principles for our spiritual life and for the spiritual warfare that we are all engaged in. And I'm going to bring out six key principles from the Battle of Iwo Jima that we see taught specifically within the Scriptures. Now, first of all, we need to understand the thinking, the defensive thinking of the enemy. That is always important in any battle in any military campaign. Sun Tzu said that we need to know our enemy and we need to understand the strategy and tactics of Satan in the spiritual warfare which we are engaged in. Now, in this particular context, we need to understand the thinking of the Japanese enemy and Kurbyashi had made a vow. Now, Kurbyashi had lived in the United States and Canada in 1928. He spoke excellent English. English. He traveled the U.S. extensively. He understood the thinking of Americans, and he thought he understood how to defeat Americans. That is not unlike Satan, who pretty much understands the thinking of Christians and the problems that we have with our own sin nature and how to easily defeat us. If you've never read through C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, I would encourage you to do that. It is one of those uh, things where he has an older demon writing to a younger demon and uh, teaching this young apprentice how to effectively 
uh, entice, coerce, and tempt Christians so that they become failures in spiritual conflict. It's uh, quite an imaginative book and quite well done. Uh, Kirbyashi made a vow, though, that uh, he said, we are here to defend this island to the limit of our strength. We cannot allow ourselves to be captured by the enemy. There were very few. There were less than 1,500 Japanese captured uh, on Iwo Jima. He said, if our positions are overrun, we will take bombs and grenades and throw ourselves under the tanks to destroy them. No man must die until he has killed at least 10 Americans. That was their main objective for each Japanese soldier to kill 10 Americans before he gave up his life. He went on to say, we will harass the enemy with guerrilla actions until the last of us has perished. Long live the emperor. And in a private letter to his wife, he wrote, this island is the front line that defends our mainland, and I am going to die here. They understood that Every soldier there understood they were not going to get off of that island alive. Now, Kirbyashi had been a good military student of both the D-Day campaigns in Normandy, the German mistakes made there, and he knew what the Marines were going to have to do in order to take the island. There was only one place where they could land, and that was a two-mile-long beach, uh, beachfront on this small island that was only eight square miles. There's the island there, and there's the area. The 5th Marine Division took the area on the lower left where Mount Suribachi is located, and then the 4th Marine Division is in the took the right-hand side, and uh, that was the area where my dad was as a second lieutenant platoon leader in the uh, 4th Marine Division. So the enemy understood what was at stake, and the enemy understood that they must face the battle as total conflict with no quarter. This is true of the enemy that we face in spiritual warfare. It is all or nothing for Satan and his forces, and he is going to use every ruse, every trick, everything he has at his disposal in order to influence human history to his advantage and to attack and destroy the witness and the effectiveness of believers. And if we do not recognize the kind of enemy that we are facing and what his objective is in terms of total warfare, then we will easily be defeated because so often, as is true in physical life and physical warfare, we just don't want to believe the worst about some people. And we don't want to believe the worst about Satan. And we see this even today in the United States, where there are still way too many people who do not want to come to grips with the thinking of radical Islam. And even though there are large numbers of Muslims who may not buy into the thinking of the radical Islamists, if you look at Germany in the 1920s, there were not that many Germans who bought into the philosophy and the thinking of the Nazis and of Adolf Hitler. If you look at the Russians, uh, the Soviet Union, there were not that many people in just the rank-and-file citizenry that bought into the thinking of Lenin or Stalin or Khrushchev. But nevertheless, it was just a minority, a minority of power brokers, that rose to a position of control and influence that shaped the 
thinking and shape the direction of the rest of that society. And so if we do not come to grips with understanding who is the most influential, who is getting the most attention, and who is attracting recruits as the radical Islamists are and as al-Qaeda is with each perceived victory that they have, then we will easily be overrun by a declared enemy of Western civilization and of the United States. And this is part of the problem that we have right now with with what's going on in New York over the uh, this gr- the, the, the attempt to build a uh, an Islamic mosque uh, across from the site of the uh, Twin Towers, and in light of what was taking place there, and we just don't understand the role that that has in the thinking of these radical Islamists. If they can construct a mosque there, that is a tremendous point of victory for them. And it will lead to even more recruiting of radicalized Muslims to their standard. And each time they have a perceived victory like that, it makes them think that they can win the whole, the whole war. It just feeds their ego. Same thing happens with Satan. Evil is a product of arrogance. And arrogance is blinding and arrogance is tenacious. And we would think that why doesn't Satan with all of his native ability and all of the the intelligence that God created in him as as the highest of the cherubs, why is it that he doesn't understand? And that is because arrogance clouds our thinking. This was certainly true of the Japanese and the the thinking that governed their strategy during uh, World War II. By the time that the Americans came to Iwo Jima. They were fighting at the very end. They knew that it could very easily lead to their ultimate defeat, but they were going to destroy everything in the process to, in order to have some measure of victory. Now, the second thing that we see in the um, Battle for Iwo, Iwo Jima is the need to under, to completely conquer the enemy's stronghold. Now, this is an air photo where you see the beach landings uh, pointed out there with that in that first arrow, and then to the right you see Mount Suribachi and you see how it dominates uh, the landscape. We knew that we had to completely destroy the enemy's strongholds, but there was much that was done in order to strengthen their defenses. Nevertheless, during those seven, the, during that time, the United States Army Air Corps had bombed the island for 72 days with 5,800 tons of bombs. And even though they were being fought, and even though all of these bombs were falling, the number of fortifications grew from 450 to 750 during the bombing. So even though we were doing everything we could to destroy those fortifications, the enemy increased their uh, number of fortifications and the tunnels that they were building underneath the volcanic ash. Uh, The U.S. naval ships uh, shelled the island for only three days, and then they uh, left in order to go prepare for the next battle, which was Okinawa. We must learn the principle that it is important for us to conquer the enemy's stronghold. This is a principle laid out in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 
verses 4 and 5, that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing. This has to do with ideologies, with false religions, with philosophies. We're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Part of total warfare is that we have to destroy all of the fortifications that the enemy has in our own thinking. We must conquer the enemy's stronghold. One of the things that we have to understand, though, in order to do that is how the enemy has constructed their defenses. We have to study the enemy to some degree so that we are able to not be taken in by his deception and by his wiles. During the time of the buildup on Iwo Jima, the Japanese had built hundreds of underground bunkers, and they had built uh, an enormous network of tunnels underneath the uh, underneath the volcanic ash, 16 miles of tunnel, 1,500 caverns, and initially they had built over 300 fortresses, and that expanded to 450 during the uh, bombing campaign that preceded the invasion. These uh, these tunnels meant that the Japanese defenders never had to come above ground. In fact, most Marines that fought on Iwo Jima during those 36 days of that campaign never saw the enemy. They only saw those who were firing out of caves, those who were firing out of bunkers, but they never actually saw a, uh, a soldier. So they were fighting a largely unseen enemy. And that is true for the believer today. Ephesians 6.12 says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. We do not see our enemy. Therefore, we have to learn what the principles of warfare are, what the principles of spiritual warfare are. We have to understand how to pray and what to pray for. And we have to trust in God as the overall commander-in-chief and follow his strategic uh, commands that are given to us in the Scripture. Now, if you look at this picture, you see how Mount Suribachi just dominated the landscape. From that fortress that, they, that the Japanese had on top of Suribachi where they had their artillery set up, they had complete control of the beaches, complete control of the island, and it, that's why it was so necessary for the, um, for the Marines to capture Suribachi at the beginning of that campaign. This was where uh, Easy Company, the company of the flag raisers, uh, landed at that end of the beach, and they, that's why they were given that particular mission in taking the flag to raise it on top of Suribachi. They recognized the principle that they had to uh, control the high ground if they were going to protect their fellow soldiers so that they can be successful in the warfare. So the principle we learned from that is the importance of taking 
the high ground. Now, the high ground in the spiritual conflict that we're engaged in was taken almost 2,000 years ago by the Lord Jesus Christ. We're told in passages such as Hebrews 12.2 and 1 Peter 3.22 that the Lord Jesus Christ, when he ascended to heaven, after he had been resurrected, after 40 days on the earth, he ascended to heaven where he was seated at the right hand of God the Father. And it was from that position at the right hand of the Father that he, as the head of the church, exercises his role as our commander-in-chief in overseeing the spiritual conflict that is unique to this age and this time. And it is from that seat, the right hand of the Father, that he will descend when he returns at the second coming to finally defeat Satan and to defeat the Antichrist and the false prophet and to set up his kingdom upon the earth. Hebrews 12.2 says that we are to look unto Jesus, the author or the pioneer and completer of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And 1 Peter 3.22 states that he has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to him. So in terms of his humanity, he has ascended to the right hand of the Father. In terms of his deity, he was always over the angels. But in terms of his humanity, because of his victory at the cross, he is elevated to a position of authority over the angels and over the authorities and over the invisible powers that are involved in spiritual warfare. So he took the high ground. Now, the importance of the high ground was understood by the Marines on Iwo Jima, and their cap, the captain of Easy Company uh, gave the flag to these men to take to the top of, of uh, Suribachi. He said, Colonel Johnson wants his big flag run up high, so every SOB on this whole cruddy island can see it. Now, there had already, already been one flag raised, but it was small and nobody could see it, and that's why a second flag had to be taken to the top because they wanted it so big that though the Marines along the beach would recognize that the high ground had been taken and that this would then encourage them. There's a great application for that for believers in Christ as we see others in the body of Christ who have uh, victories in their spiritual life, that encourages us because we all face very similar kinds of battles and very similar kinds of struggles. And one of the the sergeant who was uh, in command of these men was Mike Strank, and Mike Strank cared a tremendous amount about his men. He was a great soldier, and he was a great leader, and one of the things that he appealed to the men about was was not let's go to war to uh, win freedom, let's go to war to protect our homeland. He con- he knew that he was leading young men who were actually barely beyond the stage of being boys, and he just told them, "Follow me, listen to me, and I'll bring you home." He understood the importance of the unit as a team, watching each other's back. And that's the same kind of thing that you have in the body of Christ. The believers are to watch each other's back, that we are to encourage one another, and that we are to be involved in a teamwork in this whole spiritual conflict 
that we're involved in. And so that's our fifth principle that we see is that we must care for our fellow soldiers. And we studied that many times as we've looked at all of those verses in the Scripture that talk about how we are to encourage one another, we are to strengthen one another, we're to pray for one another, we're to care for one another, we are to uh, come together in the body of Christ and worship uh, together in the body of Christ, that there is this mutuality in the body of Christ from believer to believer that we're not just a bunch of individuals who are out there fighting our own warfare, but we are like a, a, a platoon in the military that is fighting together against a common enemy. During the course of the battle, which lasted 36 days. Now, I had a, one of my deacons at Preston City Bible Church was one of the one-third of the Marines who fought on Iwo Jima who did not get wounded. He was with the 3rd Marine Division, which was the relief unit that came in about the third or fourth day after the initial landing. So as my dad had been uh, evacuated off, then Dave Tongren, Dave Tongren's unit came on, and Dave saw the real horrors of that battle. And he spent 32 days on uh, that volcanic bump in the Pacific Ocean. And it was a time of tremendous, uh, tremendous horror for those men who had to fight their way across that, that island. 6,821 died. 19,217 were wounded during the 36 days of battle, and that included three of the men who raised the flag on Iwo Jima. And the principle that we learned from that, the sixth principle, is that freedom is purchased with blood. Freedom is purchased with blood. We do not have the freedoms that we have apart from those who are willing to fight and die for that, for those freedoms. Because there are always those who seek to take the, take those freedoms away from us. There are always those who seek to dominate, who seek to exercise control and to seek to destroy. But there are only, that our freedoms are only preserved by those who are willing to fight, willing to protect us, and willing to, to give the, the ultimate sacrifice for our freedom. And such were the men who raised the flag on the morning of February 23rd, 1945. As you look at that picture, it appears at first glance that there are only five men there. You see the first man who is kneeling down planting the flag. That was Harlan Block. And then behind him you see uh, Bradley. And then you can barely see the hand of Rene Gagnon on the other side of him. The rest of Rene is completely blocked from vision, so we really don't see much of him. We see Mike Strank. We see a little bit of him, the sergeant, through here on the back side. And then we have Sousley here, and then at the back, the Pima Indian, Ira Hayes. So it is these uh, six Marines who raised the flag on Iwo Jima. Now, if you've never read it, one of the, uh, an excellent book on this is uh, written by the son of um, the Bradley who raised the flag by his son, uh, James Bradley. And it's called Flags of Our Fathers, and that is a tremendous, tremendous book. Uh, book to read. Now, let me tell you a little bit about these men so they don't just look like empty men on a picture. 
That first man down there who's planting the flag is Harlem Block. Harlem Block was the Texan in the group. He was from down in the Rio Grande Valley. He had been a star all-state football player at his high school. He had been raised as a pacifist. He was a Seventh-day Adventist, but he went to war early on with every other male member of his graduating class. They went down to enlist uh, in the service the day after uh, graduation. When he was home on furlough before he went to the Pacific, he told his girlfriend, I don't think I'll be coming back, Catherine. Now, he had enlisted with all of his other teammates in the, in the military, but now they were off to play a different kind of game, a game that had much higher consequences than football on the field. The day after, or a couple of days after they raised that flag, Harlan never saw the Japanese soldier that shot him, and he died at the age of 21. He died holding his intestines in his hand, and then he fell down upon his face. He is forever preserved in this photograph. He wasn't identified at first. I think this is one of the more amusing stories about these men. He was not identified at first. In fact, uh, it was thought that this was another Marine who had died on the island, but his mother knew him. His mother said, I changed so many diapers on that baby's butt that I would know him anywhere. And a couple of months after, uh, after the picture was taken, some unknown individual made his way down through the valley and told his mother that, yes, indeed, that was, that was Harlan. And he was, after that, he was properly identified because there was one man from, from down there who had seen him on Suribachi. Now, John Bradley's the man behind him. Bradley's the only one of the six that wasn't a Marine. He was a Navy corpsman. That means a medic. And he had uh, been assigned to their particular unit in order to take care of the wounded and the dying. He's the father of the man who wrote the book, Flags of Our Fathers, and he survived, uh, he survived the war as well. But he never talked about it, never shared his experience with anyone. His wife said that he only spoke of Iwo Jima once on their first date. And for all of his life, his uh, children never knew what he had done or that he had received the Navy Cross for his actions on Iwo Jima. Behind him, you see Rene Gagnon, who is from New Hampshire, he enlisted in the Marines when he was 17 years old in 1943, and he was the runner and the messenger for Easy Company. If you were to take Renee's helmet off at this particular moment, you would see a photograph of his girlfriend inside the webbing, and he placed it there for protection because he was scared. He was only 18 years old. We often forget that it was just boys who fought and who won our freedom. He, too, survived the war, although for many years he had many problems in life uh, as a result of dealing with the uh, post-traumatic uh, stress. Franklin Sousley was from Kentucky. His father died when he was nine years old, and he helped his mother run a farm and raise the family. He, too, enlisted in the Marine Corps when he was 18 years old, and he was the youngest of the six on Iwo Jima. On the 31st day of fighting, he wandered into a road where Japanese snipers were active, and the shot got him from behind. As the boys around him dove to the ground, 
Franklin swatted absently at his back as though he was brushing at a fly, and then he fell. Someone shouted to him, how you doing? And Franklin answered back, not bad, I don't feel anything. And then he died. Mike Strank was the old man of the group. He was 23 years old. He was the sergeant from Pennsylvania whose job it was was to try to bring these men back alive and to get them through the campaign. He did whatever he would do, and he promised them, if you do what I say, I'll get you home to your mother's. Towards the, at the back, you have Ira Hayes. Ira Hayes was a Pima Indian from Arizona. Uh, you can see the poncho that's stuffed in his belt that's hanging out the back, which was a typical Indian way of carrying clothing. He was a quiet Indian among a tradi- from a traditionally quiet tribe, and he kept things to himself, uh, rarely speaking. He was in, uh, he was in the same unit with Strank in earlier battles at Bougainville and others where uh, one night he was lying in a foxhole when a Japanese infiltrator leaped upon him and his buddy. Hayes impaled the Japanese soldier on the end of his bayonet. He also had a later, he had a lifetime struggle with alcohol, and he died ten years almost to the day after the Battle of Iwo Jima and after the taking of this particular photograph. What we learned from this is that our freedoms aren't free. They're bought with a price. They're bought with shed blood. This is a biblical principle. In our study in 2 Kings, we focused the last several weeks on the, especially last week, on the rededication of the temple under Hezekiah. And last time as we ended, I focused on the sacrifices that took place. And I gave you some details about how much blood was poured out from those sacrifices and was used to cleanse the altar. Now, I want you to think about the juxtaposition of those ideas. The blood is used to cleanse the altar. How much blood do you use when you clean things? Now, isn't that a strange juxtaposition of ideas? And in the cleansing of the temple, sacrifices were made, and not only did they have to remove a lot of the junk and the pagan idols that had been put there under Ahaz, but they had to come in and then rededicate and reconsecrate all of the articles of furniture inside of the temple. And that involved a number of sacrifices because they would then go in and they would sprinkle the blood from the sacrifices on the altar, on the candlestick, on the incense altar, on the uh, Ark of the Covenant. All of this would have been involved. And then beyond that, we see in passages such as Second Chronicles 29, uh, 21, that they brought, and this was after they had dedicated the temple, uh, then when, and, and cleansed it, then when they are rededicating it, they brought in seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, and seven male goats for a sin offering for the kingdom, for the sanctuary, and for Judah. So there you have 28 animals that are brought in for that sin offering, and that would have produced about 113 gallons of blood and about 525 gallons of uh, gastrointestinal content that had to be removed. 
the, all of those animals would have been skinned in the process and the hide would have been used for something. Then in Second Chronicles 29.32, we read that following that, the number of burnt offerings which the assembly came, because the, the verse 21 dealt with the initial cleansing and dedication of the temple, and then the people were brought in, and when the people were brought in, then they had another series of sacrifices, and the number of those burnt offerings were 70 bulls, 100 rams, and 200 lambs, and all of these were for a burnt offering to the Lord. And the consecrated things then that were brought in by the people were 600 bulls and 3,000 sheep. And as you look at that and begin to add these things up, the 70 bulls would have produced uh, 11,340 gallons of blood. 600 bulls would have produced 97,200 gallons of blood. The 100 rams would have produced 162 gallons of blood. The 200 lambs would have produced about 108 gallons of blood. And the 3,000 sheep would have produced about 4,860 gallons of blood. All of this would have added up. If we were to fill this room with all of that blood, it would be approximately a foot deep in here from just all of those sacrifices. That is a tremendous amount of blood. Now, there are those who read this in the Old Testament and think, well, you know, this, this God that the Israelites worship was an extremely primitive God who just must have had this fixation with death and blood. And you often see people who just feel somewhat revolted by this whole picture of this God who wanted so many sacrifices. But that somewhat misses the point while it comes very close to catching the point. That was exactly what God, the feeling that God wanted people to, to experience, a sense of revolt, a sense of horror, because he wanted people to realize that that is exactly how we should respond to sin. That sin is the course, is the source of death and suffering. And sin cannot go without a penalty. And that penalty must be paid. And so in the, in the Old Testament, we see that it was paid for provisionally by these animal sacrifices. But the purpose was not only to depict the, the necessity of the sacrifice and the need for God's righteousness to be satisfied, but it was also to teach a spiritual lesson to the people on the horrors of sin and the need that sin did not, could not go unpunished. We're told in, later in Second uh, Chronicles uh, 29 that there were so many sacrifices that the priests were too few, and so they had to bring in and dedicate others in order to complete the work of skinning the sacrifices and preparing them for all of the offerings. And then in chapter 30, uh, which takes place about a month or so later as they're going to celebrate the Passover, Hezekiah is going to bring in a, a sacrifice of a thousand bulls and seven thousand sheep, and the leaders will get, then give to the assembly another thousand bulls and ten thousand sheep. And so we are left 
realizing the enormous amount of blood that was poured out on the altar in front of the temple. And all of that was designed to get our attention and to focus it forward, that sin must be paid for, and the only way that the shackles of sin can be removed is through the shedding of blood, just like the only way that we can have freedom is through the shedding of blood, those who are willing to sacrifice. So we come into the New Testament, and in John chapter 8, the Lord Jesus Christ had a confrontation with some of the Pharisees. And as he is teaching his disciples in verse 31, he said, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And the truth that he is speaking about is the truth related to sin and the related to the payment of the sin penalty. And the truth that he is speaking of is, as we see in his high priestly prayer a few chapters later, that if you know my word, uh, as he prays to the Father, he said, sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. And so that the word of God, specifically the gospel, is the source of real freedom. Well, he met some opposition from the religious leaders, and they answered him, and they said, look, we're just Abraham's descendants, and we've never been in bondage to anyone. We don't need to be free. How can you say you will be made free? And they really had missed the point. This time they're under the domination of the Roman Empire, so they are not free politically. And they missed the point in relationship to their own legalistic system that they were not free spiritually because of the bondage of the legalistic uh, religion that they had put upon themselves. But ultimately they were not free because of the bondage to sin. And Jesus focused on that. He answered them in verse 34 and said, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And the only way to be free from the bondage of sin is through the shedding of blood. Hebrews 9.22 says, And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. There's no forgiveness of sin. You know, we are in bondage to sin, and we are under the penalty of sin and the guilt of sin, but that is all removed because of what Christ did on the cross. So we have real spiritual freedom, and only that can be the basis for all of the other kinds of freedom that we may experience in life. In Galatians 5.1, the Apostle Paul states, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. The real freedom that counts is the freedom that we have spiritually because of what the Lord Jesus Christ did on Golgotha. Because he paid the penalty for sin, sin's penalty was canceled. Paul writes in Colossians 2 that that certificate of debt against us was nailed to the cross it was paid in full, Jesus said to Telestai. It is complete. It is fulfilled. It is finished. There was nothing more can be added to that. But it was necessary for that death in order for us to have real freedom. And so when we think of Memorial Day, 
And we take the time to reflect upon the freedoms that we have because of those who gave their lives on the battlefield. There is one battlefield we ought to focus on at the end of the day, and that is the battlefield that took place in Jerusalem, on Golgotha, on that rock quarry hill just outside the western gate where they crucified the Lord Jesus Christ and that during those three hours on the cross between 12 noon and 3 p.m., God the Father imputed to him the sins of the world so that they were paid for so that we could be truly free with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning to reflect upon the uh, principles that we have seen as displayed in physical warfare that are also true for spiritual warfare, especially the above all the fact that freedom is paid for with a price. And our freedom was paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ. He who knew no sin was made sin for us, that the precious blood of a lamb without spot or blemish uh, redeemed us so that we can be free from sin and free from that ultimate slavery that ensnares every one of us. And because of that, we can have hope. We can rejoice as the Israelites rejoiced after the cleansing of the temple as they brought out the orchestras and the uh, singers and sang praise to God and had tremendous joy because they realized that their sin under the, their system had been cleansed, their guilt was once again purged, they could have real joy, and we too can have real joy knowing that our sin is finally and totally paid for by Christ on the cross. We pray that if there's anyone here this morning who has never trusted Christ as Savior, who is not sure of their salvation or certain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to trust in Jesus as Savior, that he died and paid the penalty for your sins, that you can have eternal life. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with what we have studied today and that we might uh, especially focus tomorrow on those who have given their lives to purchase our civil freedom, that we might have the freedom to study your word and to proclaim the gospel and to glorify you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.